Let me read this account of the attack in Paris. We heard a loud bang, but I think we thought it was just part of the set. I, I didn't react at first, and then I heard people screaming behind me, and I turned around. And I think there was two people. They entered from the back of the arena, and they just started to open fire with what looked like AK-47s. Obviously, I just grabbed my girlfriend and pulled her with me and tried to make my way towards the exit. There was a small fire exit to the right of the stage, but a lot of us all went for it at the same time and there was a bit of a crush. We couldn't all get out. It was an automatic rifle firing into the crowd, people falling all over the place, people screaming and just clawing and running and pushing to get away. Awful, it was so full as well, I think it was sold out. Once they'd emptied their magazines, everybody kind of got back up and tried to make another dash for the exit. And then he just reloaded and tried to fire into all of us again. When he started to shoot again, we just hit the floor. I pulled my girlfriend underneath me and I lay on top of her. I thought I was going to die. Now, sorry to start my sermon with such a heavy, whoa, that's serious stuff. That was an eyewitness account of the terrorist attack of the Eagles at Death Metal Concert in Paris for an English man, Michael O'Connor, reporting to the BBC. And I'm sure most of you have all read heaps of commentary on this and um, similar to, I guess, 9-11 was New York. In, in Australia, we identify so much with Paris um, in a way that we might not um, with, with terror attacks in other countries because I guess we, we connect with it culturally. We, many, many of us would have um, walked those streets and um, can imagine ourselves in those cafes and maybe going to that concert. Even, you know, um, one of our member, um, Benjamin, had a friend who was killed in that concert. And it's quite a sad thing, terrible. And so we, we really connect with this story and um, it really impacts us. It makes us think twice about our lives. It ma makes us think, I wonder what's going on in the world today. It makes us worried about what could happen in Melbourne. See, terrorism, it's theatrical violence. It's, it's aimed to communicate fear to a certain audience, and we are that audience for ISIS. And their theatre of violence has worked on us. And now we feel a little more insecure, and I'm sure for people living in Europe, they feel a lot more insecure. I can think of a few conversations I've had in the last few weeks since it's happened where we've wondered about whether the same thing could happen here. Well, this is the goal of terrorism, isn't it? We look at that chaos and we want to bring order. And some politicians are scrambling to do that now and they want to do it with, viol with more violence, sending planes and bombing ISIS sites in Syria. Other politicians want to counteract this um, division uh, by bringing unity. Who knows what the right response is? These kind of events, I, I can remember with, with both September 11, with the Bali bombings as well, and now with the, the Paris attacks, and we've had other similar sorts of things over the last 15 years or so. They get under our skin because they dislodge a crisis of meaning in us. I don't know if you ever feel the pain of existence. You know, where, where you realise the reality of life. See, what terrorist attacks do? They raise these pain of existence questions like, 
it sucks out of us. It sucks us out of our luxurious Western comfort and, and says to us, one day you are going to die. I'm just reminding you of this. Something like that. That's what that tragedy does. It also it reminds us in a horrific way that we are not in control of our own lives. However much we want to try and be, we just don't know what's going to happen next. And so this creates a crisis of existence for us. Now, you might remember from our last sermon in the series, if you were here or if you listened to the podcast, that after the reign of King Solomon, Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom. And after about 200 years and 19 kings, the northern kingdom was attacked by the Assyrians, the Assyrian army, and taken into exile. And after about 720 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is what we read about in 2 Kings 25, which is based around the area of the city of Jerusalem, it lasted about another 150 years until about 586 BC. And in our reading, we read about the end, the destruction, the, 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 the tearing down of this city. They had hung on in despair, convinced that they were God's chosen, and they were God's chosen. They'd held on to God's promises. He promised through their patriarch, Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would be many and would bring, be a blessing to the nations. His name would be great. They'd promised to King David that his dynasty would be eternal. And they had seen this come to fruition. They'd seen the building of the temple. They'd seen Jerusalem become great. But things were looking pretty shaky. And then by this passage, this chapter, we see it all come to an end. I mean, surely Jerusalem wouldn't go down. See, God had shown to his people over many centuries that he could and he would and he does keep his promises. But also that he could discipline them, humble them, if they would not be be an obedient people. If the kings were disobedient, if they led their people into disobedience, then there would be a consequence. And the fact is, if you, if you get out a list, and you can get these lists in books and you can type it in Google or whatever, I'd say the, the kings of Israel, kings of Judah, and, and say bad or good. <laughs> Northern kingdom, it's just a list of bad. In, uh, in other words, disobedient, evil kings. And the southern kingdom, mostly bad. Two-thirds of them were bad. There were a couple of good ones. Um, but then by the time you get to the last four kings... They're all bad. And God had had enough of their sin. The children of Abraham had lost their way. There was always a faithful remnant of, 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 of worshippers, faithful to God, obedient. But in general, everyone had lost it. Most of them were rotten to the core. So God handed the southern kingdom over to, Babel, to the Babylonians. They experienced the violence, the terror, of war. Judah was obliterated. Already in the previous chapter of 2 Kings 24, at the very end, you, you read about this king, um, Jehoiakim, with an N on the end. There's a Jehoiakim with an M. Don't get confused. Jehoiakim only reigned for three months, and he was taken away, taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then his uncle, uh, 
King Zedekiah went on to reign and take over and reign for 11 years. But for the last two years, he had the pressure of the Babylonian army all around him. Um, and then look at, see what happens at verse 6, eventually, in the end. He was taken, this is King Zedekiah, he was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. And then the Babylonian army went and destroyed the whole city. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Stuff that goes on in that part of the world. The temple was destroyed. The precious temple built to God's instructions, the very presence of God. While, while God is obviously not bound to a building, its destruction symbolised a spiritual end to an era. They would not only experience geographical and political exile, but now these people would experience spiritual exile. God did not abandon them forever, but their religious rituals and regular practices of worship and sacrifice, all gone. This was national, spiritual and cultural desolation. Disorientation. The Babylonian army removed their religious and military and civil personnel. So all the officers are gone. And the people left there in the city of Jerusalem experienced this intense chaos of terror and war. Every element of their life is gone. The sacred and the symbolic buildings were desecrated and ruined. Holy vessels taken away and put into Nebuchadnezzar's treasure chest. And the king was maimed and exiled. And then there's this puppet administration put, put in afterwards. Get a liar. And that fails as well. And those responsible for that run away to Egypt. So make no mistake, this is God's judgment. At, ha at hand here. The savage sacking and burning, spoiling and looting. This was actually long expected divine judgment. See, about a hundred years earlier, there'd been another king in the south, Manasseh. He was 687 to 642. Reigned for 55 years and he was a disaster. Listen to what 2 Chronicles 33 verse 9 says about Manasseh. It's a summary of his kingship, 55 years in this verse. Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. You know, Manasseh had done stuff like Baal worship, worshipping the gods and the stars. He built shrines everywhere to do pagan worship. He'd even put like an um, like idol thing in the temple. I mean, that is the ultimate blasphemy for a king of Israel. And so the prophet, there'd been prophecy and an expectation that God would eventually judge um, Judah for this. And so, in a way, it's no surprise for those paying attention. Okay, let's just pause for a second in history and think about ourselves. You know, I pray that none of you will never experience terror. And um, let's just keep praying for that. And perhaps we'll never experience war, but who knows? But it's highly likely, in fact, it's almost guaranteed that at one point in your life, if not many points in your life, you will experience physical, 
geographical and even spiritual disorientation. Perhaps you, you lost your job. Perhaps a significant relation ended. You experienced divorce. Um, perhaps someone dies in your family. Perhaps you go to the doctor one day and the doctor says, I've got some news for you. And you find out you've got some illness that's quite significant. Or maybe that's a family member. And perhaps also you've experienced, you might experience spiritual disorientation at one point. Or maybe multiple points, you maybe stop attending your church community for some reason. You find yourself disconnected from your networks of Christian friends. Your routine is all messed up. How do you respond to this? Where is God when everything just becomes disoriented, when everything's thrown in the air? Uh, you could experience it as horror, but it could also experience it in other ways. Where is God in all of this? Last night, um, Tom Hodson and I went to uh, see a gig. Um, the amazing singer, uh, Ron Sexsmith. Don't get distracted by his name. That's actually his real name. And um, anyway, a friend, old friend of mine, Mark Lang, was playing support. Um, so I, went, I was excited to see Mark play. And he was the first um, singer up. And... Um, he painted. He told this story of disorientation, which I want to share with you, um, which I think helps us to understand what we're talking about. Mark lives down at Point Lonsdale, and he said that when he and his wife first moved there, um, they no one had warned them about um, this, what it's like to live on the heads of Port Phillip Bay. So anyway, they were um, asleep one night, and about three o'clock in the morning, he said he heard. <laughs> Oh, that's a bit loud, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I just woke you up, didn't I? Good, good. There you go. Sorry for the recording. He, he heard a foghorn. Sorry, I'll, I'll try that again. <laughs> sorry about that. Two, two people's wax just fell out of their ear. Now, he said everyone might know about lighthouses. You know what lighthouses do, they do that and the light goes out and so the boats can see where to go when they're coming into the heads. But he said sometimes there's a fog and the lighthouses don't do much. And so what they do is they, they blast these horns from the land and the, and the captains of the ship know what to do. And they had their own fog horn which is at a high pitch and they blast that and there's this kind of sending to and fro of horns, right? And so this was going on. And he said, he once met this captain of a ship in Point Lonsdale that explained to him that um, one night he was out in his ship and the boat was out there and um, it was really foggy and he couldn't hear any foghorns and he could see that the water was green and apparently when the water's green, that means the storm's about to hit and they're out there in the water and then this wave just went smack on the side of the boat and then another wave came smack on the other side of the boat and they were absolutely petrified and he was waiting for that foghorn and he couldn't hear the foghorn Mark used this story to illustrate a passage of life that he had experienced and it, with his wife where one day they found out that his wife just after they'd had the first born um, son that she had ovarian cancer. 
And he said it was like they were out in the sea and the wave had just hit them and knocked them over. They felt disoriented in the fog. And so the song was about crying out to God and saying, you know, where are you? I, I can't hear the foghorn. He didn't say God, but I think that's what he meant. At the Norfolk Social Club, you see crying out, Where are you? Yeah, anyway, the ship fly, blowing its foghorn, waiting to hear the other foghorn. And I'm sure many of us have heard, felt that, that wave hit the side of the boat of our lives, the shock of news, wondering about our future, worrying about our family. See, a key part of our Christian discipleship is that. God does not shield us as Christians, as his children, from darkness. It is part of the normal human experience to have sleepless nights, fear and weeping at times. And sometimes darkness creeps up on us over a long period. This loneliness, this spiritual turmoil and emotional panic, all of this is the flavour of hell. You might have had these dark nights of the soul, as they, they call it, coming upon you because of the after effects of your sin. This certainly was a case for the southern kingdom of Judah, culmination of sin and God's judgment coming down. But then it's not always the case, is it? Like usually for most of the time, we just get these waves hitting the side of the boat of our lives because of just the way life is. We're living in a broken world. Things are unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen next. And it's normal at these times to even question your faith. It's common experience to sound your horn out at sea and maybe not hear anything back and feel completely disoriented in the fog. Psalm 11 verse 3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? See, for us as, as Christians, if you're a Christian, if your vision of Christ is gone, what, what do you do? If you can't see anymore, what do you do? You'll start to wonder whether he's there at all. And you might go for months or years experiencing theological disorientation. You might experience continuous questions, nagging doubts, panic attacks, false hope, followed by relapse. Will you recover? The effects of these dark nights, they linger, they leave an impression. They mark us so that we limp for the rest of our days. Now the Bible is wise about this. The Bible knows that this is the way life is and helps us we are told to stick together we are told to build the strong bonds of relationships while there's no fog while you can see what's happening while you can see the horizon form the strong bonds uh, proverbs 17 verse 17 says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity Remember Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12, not just about weddings at all. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Bandy together when you're feeling disoriented. The Bible also talks about obedience and it says that when you're experiencing that fog, the pain of existence, you should stay obedient to God. Idleness combined with anger and despair, it's a dangerous cocktail. There's a great bit in the famous bit in the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, when the senior devil says, 
Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, our enemy being God, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So we need to learn to resist um, spiritual fatalism. That is the desire to throw in the towel. And you can have, and I'm a strong believer in this, faith and doubt existing side by side. Um, don't, don't believe the false thing that every Christian you see at church is fully, you know, got 100% strong faith the whole time. We carry all kinds of mixed things going on in our hearts. Remember the words that, that were said to Jesus by the father of the, the boy possessed by the evil spirit. He said, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Now that sums up a lot of our lives, isn't it? Bible also says that just as for the, the captain of the ship who, who, who just keeps, you know, focused in that fog, even when he feels disoriented, once through the fog, becomes a, a, better, a better captain, a better sa- sailor, so too staying close to your Christian community, staying obedient to God, riding the wave through the fog, it grows our faith. When we are in the middle of the crisis, it's almost impossible to understand. Yet if we just remove ourselves from the crisis and think about it, we don't really know it that deeply. It's, it's interesting. Again, C.S. Lewis makes a point in God in the Docks. He says that when you have a toothache, you're experiencing this intense, intense pain. But once a toothache stops, you can only think about it intellectually. And you're not, it's a quite a different knowing, isn't it? It's a learning that comes through experiencing. And yet he also makes a point, Lewis makes a point, that, that through this time of, of disorientation, God grows us through this different kind of learning. In the problem of pain, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So if you're experiencing a crisis of life, if you're feeling physically or spiritually disoriented, hold on to your community, stay obedient, value your relationships, know that he is transforming you. Your faith is getting stronger. You're learning to trust God more and more. You can't see it now, but you will see it later. There's something else though, and it's in the passage. See, in the grand story of the Bible, God shows time and time again that he meets despair with grace. And we see a glimpse of this, a little glimpse of this in 2 Kings 25. A hopeful note at the end. God's judgment on Judah, uh, long promised by the prophets, executed by the Babylonians, has done its work. And now you might remember earlier that, that King reigned for three months, Jehoiakim, who was taken away. Well, we, he comes back into the story at the end of 2 Kings 25. He'd been cap, in, you know, in, in cap captive by Nebuchadnezzar. But in verse 27, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon eventually freed Jehoiakim from his chains and had him sit at the royal table and eat with him. The storm had passed and a new day had dawned. The children of Abraham were now 
in exile. They were away from their home. They had no temple, but the torment had calmed down. They had a new kind of life under Babylonian pagan rule. It was a long way from the promised land, but the torment had calmed. And this taste of God's grace goes to the heart of his character of God. While they were being humbled, while they were reduced in number, while they were in exile, God would never let go of them. And they would return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple one day. And God would eventually send his promised Messiah. And just to end, let's just remember that their failed attempts year after year, king after king of failed obedience would be met by the future King Jesus who would provide forgiveness and give them the righteousness that they could just could not achieve. And it would be King Jesus who one day would be out with his friends in a boat in the storm and a wave would crash on the side of the boat, another wave would crash on the side of the boat and his friends would come and say to him, can you help us out here? What is going on? And he would stick up his hands and the storm would be calmed. He would say, be still. And his friend said to him, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Let us pray. Lord God, this is um, uh, hard stuff to think through and especially if we're in the storm right now, in the fog right now. Please help us to be a church community that can hold on to each other and never let each other go. That we can remain obedient when we're feeling disoriented. That we can trust in your grace. And thank you for Jesus who has given us his righteousness. Amen.